Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 41, Fate and Foreknowledge, Toward Hellenistic Astrology. Well, the allotted Kairos has arrived, and it's time to introduce the real deal, astrology. We've spent several episodes in an effort to try to give some idea of the matrix of ideas out of which this most important of the occult sciences arose, But now, as we've reached the Hellenistic period, in our vaguely chronological progress, it's time to talk about the origins of true astrology in all its celestial importance for the history of Western esotericism. Astrology, defined as a system of thought which sees the celestial bodies as determinant of events here on Earth, along with the systematic attempt to understand and harness these celestial determinations, began in Mesopotamia, as we saw in episode 10 on the development of Mesopotamian astronomy astrology. But defined in a more narrow sense, astrology comes to be in the Hellenistic period, in the Greek-speaking milieu of Hellenistic Egypt. And it seems, more particularly, in the great Hellenistic cosmopolis of Alexandria, from about the 2nd century BCE onward. We'll talk about what we mean by this more narrow definition in a moment. From the 2nd century on, We can muster loads of evidence in the form of horoscopes, and slightly later in the form of early technical manuals of how astrology is supposed to work. And the rest is history. This dating of the origins of astrology as we know it is very conjectural, but it seems unlikely that horoscopes were appearing earlier than the 3rd century in Egypt, since most of the horoscopes we have from Babylon are from the 3rd century, and Babylon seems definitely to have been the source of this particular genre, the horoscope. But even if our dating must remain a probably the 2nd century, in this episode we'll get into the details a little bit and look at the complex web of cultural and scientific influences which went into the pot and got mixed up, and at the end of the uh, session of cooking there was a delicious new dish known as Western Astrology. But before we do, A few words on the central importance of astrology to Western esotericism are in order. To quote Koko von Stuckrad, astrology is an integral component of ancient culture and had an important impact on Western Geistgeschichte, that's history of ideas. This holds notably true for the history of esotericism. Emerging from an hermetic discourse, astrology can be regarded as esoteric thinking's central discipline. It stands in the center of alchemy and magic, and exerted a strong influence on Western culture since Renaissance times. End of quote. Now, this is all true, but it's actually a rather narrowly focused and understated take on the history of astrology. In fact, for much of Western history, in various places, astrology has not really been esoteric at all. In many times and places, it was as mainstream as, say, economics is today. Certainly, Just as modern political leaders muster teams of economists to get their monetary policy right, the figure of the court astrologer in previous eras was a completely normal and indeed necessary part of the royal staff who helped get the running of the kingdom or empire right. And we might add that uh, economics probably has no greater claim to be an exact science than astrology. Astrology has always been an occult science in the sense of a science which seeks to understand and exploit hidden connections between the stars and planets and events and things here on Earth. But it's often occupied a social and doctrinal position with nothing occult about it at all. Not only mainstream, but indeed elite, and thus in a position to decide 
what the mainstream would be for society at large. Now, this isn't to say that astrology has not posed problems for mainstream discourses down the ages. The history of divinatory astrology gives us examples of run-ins between diviners and state power from very early on, which is no wonder if you think about it. We described in episode 10 the world's first intelligence service in the form of the scribal bureaucracy of Babylon, who, with their celestial observations and omen interpretations, sort of spied on the gods for the king. What was an empire to do if that same power of prediction and ability to read the omens should fall into the hands not of state functionaries, but of the tumultuous masses? Well, the Roman Senate ordered all Chaldeans expelled from Rome in 139 BCE. By Chaldeans here, we understand the normal Roman word for Babylonians, which had already by the 2nd century BCE come to mean simply astrologer, someone who did divination based on the stars. So, the Roman Senate expelled the Chaldeans, read astrologers. That being said, the Emperor Augustus would later issue coins featuring his own zodiacal birth sign and other astrological omens as a form of imperial propaganda. So, we probably see in the first case, the expulsion of the astrologers, both the usual Roman xenophobia, the Senate expelled all sorts of foreign muck in their time, including philosophers from time to time. But we also see a fear that these diviners, these astrologers, were stirring up the common folk with their talk of astrally determined future events. Other Roman sources confirm a deep class consciousness in the reaction of Roman elites to the astrology of the lower orders. And we'll come back to that in a later episode. But in the second case, the case of imperial propaganda, we see astrology harnessed by the state in the service of empire. Clearly, we're dealing with potent stuff here, and the story of astrology in Rome is so juicy that we shall have to devote a special episode to it later on in the podcast. But at other times, for example, throughout the Islamic Middle Ages and into the early modern period, astrology was a key art or science in the service of kings. It was the very definition of elite, mainstream, cutting-edge imperial science. The city of Baghdad, the new capital purpose-built by the Abbasid caliphs to be the center of their new world empire, was founded on a day chosen by astrologers. That was the 30th of July, 762, in case you're wondering. And this was chosen as the most auspicious possible date to found the capital city of a world empire. The list could be extended almost indefinitely, and the court astrologer certainly had a firm foothold among the crowned heads of Europe as well in the late Middle Ages and early modern period, although to perhaps a lesser extent. We shall have to explore that in later episodes. We also have cases which we should mention where astrology was embraced by a certain tradition only once it had been partially domesticated. As we shall see in due course, Jews were involved in astrology in a big way pretty much from the beginnings of astrology, and Christians were involved in astrology in a big way pretty much from the beginnings of Christianity. But at least in the case of later doctrinaire post-Nicene Christianity, the kind of Christianity that would later evolve into what we know as Catholicism and Orthodoxy, there were potential theological problems with accepting that the stars were the cause of fate. What about human free will on the one hand, and what about God's omnipotence on the other? The solution, as we shall see, was not the rejection of astrology by Christianity, as many scholars have long suggested, counter to the evidence, 
but rather the formation of acceptable Christian astrologies, which then went on to flourish wildly throughout antiquity all the way down to modern times, as the historical evidence abundantly shows. So to sum up, the history of astrology stretches from Hellenistic antiquity right up to the modern era, in which time it has occupied the entire spectrum from utterly forbidden art, either because it's politically dangerous or it's theoretically wrong or sinful, or both, all the way over to the other end of the spectrum, the most prestigious and valued of sciences, cultivated by the most powerful and educated ruling elites of the day, as an essential tool of power and authority. As often in the history of esotericism, what is esoteric in one age was often mainstream in another age, and the reverse happens equally often. This being said, however, astrology in its serious form, in its learned form, has always remained esoteric in a certain sense, in that it's always been impenetrably difficult to master, and thus accessible only to a small group with the educational opportunities necessary to master its intricacies. So having made this introduction to the importance of astrology, we should say what our more specific definition of astrology is going to be as we move into the Hellenistic period, and get on with detailing how and when and where it arose. It turns out that the best way to do the first thing, to define astrology, is to do the second, to examine its historical origins, since what we know nowadays as astrology is basically the outcome of the process of cultural and scientific ferment which went on in the Hellenistic period. While different systems of astrology in the West really vary hugely, both in their procedural details, so how you do astrology, what celestial events are significant, etc., how you make horoscopes, all that kind of stuff, and also in their theoretical background, so how exactly the stars are supposed to cause destinies here on Earth. You know, this can be a very naturalistic explanation, as the ones given in Aristotle, or it can be something involving supernatural agency. There's lots of different ways you could explain how the stars are meant to cause what happens down here. But there's a common core of theory and practice which emerges in the Hellenistic period, which becomes the gold standard, not only in the Greco-Roman world, but throughout the Western Middle Ages and beyond, even as far afield as China, interestingly enough. So let's do a quick rundown of the main cultural currents which fed into this Hellenistic astrological tradition. Here we encounter an interesting thing. The ancient Greeks and Romans had their own ideas about who invented astrology, and they were sort of right and sort of wrong. Our classical authors agree that either the Chaldeans, the Egyptians, or both were the founders of the discipline of astrology. And this is, in a certain sense, the same basic thing that modern scholarship says on the subject, but the details are very different, and the devil, as we know, is in the details. The ancient authors gave hugely inflated figures, for one thing, so the historian Diodorus Siculus repeats a figure of 473,000 years since the Chaldeans began to take astronomical observations. That's a long time. Note that Diodorus is incredulous about this figure. He doesn't actually believe it, but he reports it. But he's not incredulous about the idea that the Chaldeans were the daddies of astrology. And note too, interestingly, that he assimilates what we would call astronomical data gathering, which is what the Chaldeans had been up to, as we know, for several thousand years, to astrology or divination. In his time, the Chaldeans were known for astrology in the Greek world, while Greek scientists had made their mark in the field of astronomy, eclipsing their Babylonian predecessors. So maybe this accounts for why he calls the entire 
Mesopotamian astronomical project, astrology. Well, we would call it very large and long-scale project of astrology, astronomy. As we saw in episode 9, the Greeks generally agreed that the Mesopotamian and Egyptian civilizations were vastly, vastly ancient, and so these kind of figures of hundreds of thousands of years reflect this idea and shouldn't particularly surprise us. Now, modern scholarship, since Neugebauer, has agreed that the early Egyptians, that is, the Egyptians before, say, the conquest of Egypt by the Persian Empire in 525 BCE, while they were very interested in calendrical matters, and they did observe the stars a lot, didn't do much of anything in the way of mathematical astronomy, which the Mesopotamians had specialized in. But astrology as we know it did indeed emerge from Egypt, although this was a very late Hellenized Egypt. It wasn't all that ancient, but as we shall see, the earliest astrological texts which we know from Egypt are attributed to names with an inherent savor of antiquity. Not least the great sage Hermes, for it is he who seems already to have been ancient in every era in which he appears. So we have every reason to believe that astrology as we know it came to be in 2nd century BCE, Egypt. And the solid documentation mostly dates from the 1st century BCE. The Greco-Roman writers who comment on the origins of this discipline, however, push these origins back, way back into the dim reaches of their own distant past, and often attribute them to Hermes, among other great sages. We undoubtedly have an early example of Orientalism, in at least a quasi-Saidian sense here, as astrology was viewed in the early centuries of its presence in Rome, at least, with a mixture of xenophobic suspicion and rather too hearty enthusiasm by the Romans. Just the mix of chauvinism and fascination which we associate with more classic examples of Saidian Orientalism, as exemplified by the Orientalist scholars of the 18th and 19th centuries, who sort of wrote from a position of obvious cultural superiority, but then at the same time were very fascinated by the uh, Oriental cultures that they were studying. Turning toward our modern body of text-based data, we'll try to do a summary of the basics here. As the bibliography to this episode reflects, the history of early astrology is a field where new data is regularly coming to light, which is always an exciting thing when studying ancient history. To give an example of the kinds of texts we need to look at when trying to nail down the origins of astrology, they include Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets, lots and lots of them, Egyptian tomb decorations and temple decorations, and texts associated with temples, pottery shards with primitive horoscopes scratched upon them, papyri in Greek, papyri in Demotic, and sometimes just pictures of stars, which may or may not be astrological, but are certainly interesting, architecture, such as Egyptian temples oriented toward stellar events of particular importance, and a complex body of later evidence from the Greco-Roman world, which, as usual, sometimes preserves much older material in direct or indirect quotations, and all of which has to be handled with care as we try to reconstruct earlier literature. So, lots of this stuff is still sitting in archives or museum storerooms, and only gradually coming to light. And still more of it is still being dug up from the ever-promising Egyptian sands. There's a huge range of linguistic expertise called for in interpreting this vast array of data. So we shouldn't be surprised that the field continues to surprise us. 
but the basic story seems to be written something like as follows. Firstly, the so-called Chaldeans. Now, these are the folks whom we've been referring to in a sloppy way as Babylonians up till now, but the Greeks and Romans called them Chaldaioi or Chaldei, respectively, so we'll just adjust our language accordingly. When Greeks and Romans are talking about Babylonians, they call them Chaldeans. So the term Chaldean referred in the first instance to a particular linguistic group from Mesopotamia, a group of uncertain lineage, but which the Greeks at any rate associated with astronomical astrological expertise. And as we mentioned earlier, Chaldean came to mean simply astrologer quite early on in the classical period. The Chaldeans as an ethnic group may or may not have developed specialist religious functions at some point in the Near Eastern realms, rather like the Magoi in the Achaemenid period that we talked about in an earlier episode. Luckily for our purposes, we don't need the requisite linguistic and historical expertise to pronounce on this question, since what we're mainly concerned with is later Western appropriation of the Chaldeans. And once appropriated, Chaldeans are basically just specialists in astrology. In fact, in later Roman documents, it's not always clear whether when someone is called a Chaldean, if they're meant to even have Near Eastern provenance. They might just be a Roman astrologer, for example. Now, We've seen that much of the impetus for the development of astronomy probably came from the Mesopotamian belief in astral omens and the importance, for the good of the state, of being able to interpret them correctly. But in the late 5th century BCE, something new and very interesting happens which we have not yet touched upon. We find our first Babylonian horoscopes. Some 30 plus of these have been found. And here's the nice thing about horoscopes. They're pretty much the only type of text from antiquity that you really can put a solid date to, because all you have to do is compute the motions of the celestial bodies in reverse, which you can do very easily nowadays on a computer, and you know an exact day. So our earliest find so far dates to 13th of January, 410 BCE. But most of these Babylonian horoscopes are from the 3rd century and later, so the 200s BCE. It's clear that this and other early Mesopotamian horoscopes evolved out of the omen literature that we've talked about in previous episodes, and that for whatever reasons, the previously imperial scale purview of the astral gods was now in the 5th century being focused on the humble individual human being. I haven't a clue why this very significant social change would have happened, but it's a fascinating development and a definite move in the direction of what we know as astrology. The Babylonians had also, as we saw in the last episode, developed the zodiac over many centuries, until around the same time, the 5th century or so, at which point it really was the zodiac we know and love today. So you had your 12 signs in much the same form as they survive today in Western astrology, Aquarius, Pisces, you know the deal, and it had been regularized so that each constellation governed 30 degrees of celestial arc. In other words, the sky is divided into 12 equal parts, giving a regular 12-fold division of the 360-degree sky. And incidentally, 360 degrees is a way of dividing up a circle, which we still use today, which goes back to Mesopotamia. So thanks, Mesopotamia. This zodiac became popular outside of Mesopotamia. This is the point. And it shows up in Egypt from at least the 3rd century BCE. And we see it widely brought into use there, and at some point brought into a single system with the native Egyptian deccans. The famous zodiac of Dendera, 
an awesome sealing relief from a pronaos dedicated to Osiris. That's a kind of side temple of a temple in the Temple of Hathor at Dendera in Egypt, dates to the first century CE and combines the Mesopotamian zodiac with native Egyptian decans, giving pretty much the units of division of all later astrological systems. The 12 signs of the zodiac give the basic 12-fold pattern, and the decans can provide a more fine-grained division of 36 sections of 10 degrees each. The dating of this zodiac was in dispute for ages, but it seems to have been put firmly in the reign of the emperor Tiberius now. And this is through interpretation of actual depictions of celestial events that are in the relief itself. So score one for archaeoastronomy. And for a picture of the Dendra zodiac, you can see the notes to this episode. The zodiac also entered Greece at some undetermined point in the classical period. We find the earliest evidence of its appearance in the works of Eudoxus of Cnidos, whom we mentioned last episode a contemporary of Plato who studied with him. We should note in this context that the zodiac was seemingly strictly astronomical in the eyes of Eudoxus rather than astrological. Um, we can conclude this because we have Eudoxus on record as saying that the Chaldeans' claims to being able to divine a man's future from the position of the stars at his birth were false. So we don't think Eudoxus was a particularly astrologically minded chap. And this is interesting as well because it's 5th century evidence both that the Greeks recognized that the Chaldeans were practicing what seems to be horoscopic astrology, and also that elements in the movement of nascent astronomy were opposed to astrology. So the idea that astronomy and astrology were always one tradition in the ancient world is not true. There were many, many theories that tried to separate different elements of each from each other in very complex ways. Eudoxus lived in the generations prior to the Hellenistic era, and during that era we see more and more zodiacs popping up in Greece, to the point where it became a standard way of marking out the night sky among both astronomers and astrologers and the many thinkers who partook of both disciplines. So let's turn to Egypt for a minute. Egypt was its own place and always had been, but cultural links between Egypt and Mesopotamia should definitely not surprise us. They'd been politically unified under the Persians from 525 BCE, as we've said, and then once Alexander conquered the Persians, politically unified under Alexander. And once Alexander's empire collapsed, the Ptolemaic successor kingdom was perhaps the most cosmopolitan state of the ancient world, and so had, among others, many Babylonians living in it. You could find every race, creed, and color in Hellenistic Alexandria. It was the original cultural melting pot. And sometime in the 3rd century, as we've seen, the Egyptians took on the Zodiac from their Mesopotamian neighbors. Now, there's evidence from earlier periods for what we might call a kind of decanic, pre-Zodiacal astrology, like a native Egyptian astrology. See the book of von Baumhard in the notes to this episode on the so-called Temple of the Decans, dating to the 4th century. But I'm not really qualified to say how astrological this and other early evidence for Egyptian astrology was. It's clear that elements of astrology as we know it, in terms of casting horoscopes and using the zodiac, arise in Egypt from sometime in the 3rd century. But clearly the Egyptians were interested in the stars for much, much longer than that, and thought that the stars had divine power as well. Nevertheless, the evidence for the zodiacal 
um, horoscopic astrology that arises in the third century-ish in Egypt is fairly thick on the ground. Um, we have horoscopes in the Demotic language and later Demotic technical manuals of astrology associated with the cult of certain temples, and also lots of material from Egypt in Greek. Now this brings us to the Greeks, because although we've just mentioned the Demotic evidence for Egyptian astrology, and now we're talking about proper astrology here, with zodiac and so forth, the majority of our evidence is in Greek. Greek, we'll recall, was widely spoken by the settlers in places like Alexandria, but also by many Egyptians, who, increasingly as the Hellenistic period wore on, found it useful to learn Greek. If we imagine how a city like Alexandria must have functioned in this period, we must conclude that bilingualism would have been a minimum position, and that there would have been plenty of people routinely speaking Greek, Egyptian, certainly quite a bit of Aramaic about, which had been the official language of the Persian state and was widely spoken throughout the Near East, and any number of other tongues. Greek being the language of the administration and of science, as well as the language of an increasingly international literature. And so it would have been the default tongue for writing things like technical manuals. And this in turn brings us to our evidence for the earliest systematic astrological writings, which come out of Egypt, but are written in Greek. But before we turn to the works of the great Hermes, for it is he and his colleagues, let's bring in the Greek astronomical and cosmological material we discussed in the last episode. So Hellenistic cosmology seems to be the final piece in the puzzle which completes the picture of Hellenistic astrology and makes it basically the astrology which would go on to conquer the world. To the contributions from Egypt and the Near East, the Greek cosmology added a systematic picture of the cosmos. As we saw last time, this cosmos became, from Aristotle onwards, decidedly geocentric, with the planets, sun and moon, inhabiting orbital spheres nested one inside the other. Not all astronomers thought these spheres physically existed, but they certainly thought that the motions of the planets were circular. When this worldview met with the ideas of planetary gods and astrally determined events on Earth coming from the Near East, combined with the Egyptian synthesis of horoscopic, zodiacal, and other Near Eastern ideas with their own native decanic proto-astrological traditions, the result was astrology, more or less as we know it. Planets and the signs of the zodiac turning about the Earth and sending down their influences upon the sublunary world, or alternately, being the causes of events on the sublunary world in some other way. Aristotle actually gave a purely physical account of how the sun and the moon, at least, could influence events here on Earth, as we've seen. And we saw in the previous episode that he occasionally made stronger statements to the effect that the stars were the consummate causes of earthly events. But this is all naturalistic. Now, the Chaldeans had given the Greeks the knowledge that the movements of the heavens were predictable, and this knowledge, coupled with a belief in astral influences of some kind, for the Chaldeans, of course, the stars were gods, so they had a very different kind of effect on life on Earth here, but astral influences of some kind naturally leads to the idea that one might be able to predict what is going to happen by careful observation of the stars and planets. Q astrology. So, do we have a working definition of astrology emerging out of all this? I'm tempted to go with something like the following. Astrology, broadly, is the science of understanding the nature of the influences exerted by the heavenly bodies on earthly events, and of making predictions based on this understanding. So it's a system of divination, or prognostication. Now this is 
a broader definition than most scholars of astrology are happy with. So usually, for example, the omen literature of Babylonia is discussed as something distinct from astrology. Now, this sort of broad astrology I'm laying out here is underlaid by a belief in the star's efficacy as causes, which might take the form of an idea of astral fate, or of emanations from the heavenly bodies, or it might take some other form. But for astrology to make sense, one has to believe that the stars affect things here on Earth in a real but occult fashion. According to this broad definition, as we said in episode 10, Babylonian omen literature and the associated interpretive and apotropaic practices are astrological, in a loose sense anyway. But Hellenistic astrology had characteristics which differentiate it, and these characteristics happen to have become universal in the West from the Hellenistic period onward. So to define this astrology, we will add three more defining characteristics, for the purposes of this podcast at least. The Hellenistic cosmological model of a geocentric cosmos, with the sun and moon and planets all orbiting around the Earth. The zodiac in its final regularized form. And last but not least, the specific modes of prediction, which we find most commonly in this early astrological literature, namely the horoscope and the consultation of the stars to find auspicious and inauspicious times for doing different things. So in other words, the kinds of prognostications that you make in Hellenistic astrology are very, very different from the imperial omen interpretation that went on in early Mesopotamia. Now, in the next episode, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of how the Hellenistic astrological synthesis worked. So we won't explain the many other essential elements of the system, like aspects, zodiacal houses, and so on, right now. And I must admit, for this, we need expert help. Instead, let's finish this episode with a few more points of historical interest. First of all, we should talk briefly about how astrology came to Greece proper, we don't actually know how this happened, I should say, but the Greeks had their own theories about it, which are quite fascinating. And then we should look at the evidence for the earliest known manuals of astrology from Hellenistic Egypt, which unfortunately don't survive for the most part. We should look at it because this literature contains, among other things, the very beginnings of the genre of hermetic writings, one of the core traditions of Western esotericism, and one which is little known in this earliest manifestation. So, First of all, how did the Greek world, that is, not the Greek world in Egypt or the Greek world in the Near East, but the Greek world in places like Athens or southern Italy, the, the core Greek world, come into contact with and embrace astrology? Modern scholars tend to be uncomfortable with the kinds of explanations that the Greeks themselves gave for this sort of knowledge transfer, and were right to be cautious. As we've seen before in this podcast, the Greeks loved them some founder figures, and where modern scholars might see a long and complex process of cultural contact, the Greeks, and also the Romans after them, will often just give us a name. So, for example, the name of Hermes will come up again and again, standing for the whole astrological literature with all its manifold cultural currents of influence. Hermes simply founded astrology, as far as many Greeks and Romans are concerned, and many medieval people as well. But in the case of the transfer of this knowledge to Greece at large, we have two interesting names that pop up in Greco-Roman sources. So these are not founders of astrology, these are the people who brought it to Greece. One of these is Berossus, who was a historical chap, a Chaldean priest who settled on the Greek island of Kos sometime in the Hellenistic period. The dating here is um, a little bit uncertain. 
and Barossos allegedly set up a school where he taught Chaldean astronomy and philosophy to the Greek world. Now, this is probably a reference to, among other things, some kind of interpretation of the stars based in the omen tradition. He wrote a book in Greek, which is sadly lost, but which was an expose of Babylonian history for a Greek audience. Now, Barossos really was a person who really did teach on Kos, and while few today would want to look at such a simple explanation of the transmission of astrology to the Greek world, especially since Barossos as a Chaldean might have been steeped in a more omen-based tradition than the Hellenistic synthesis which emerged from Egypt, he nevertheless probably had some part to play in knowledge transfer. Another candidate given by the Greek geographic writer Strabo is one Sudinis, another Babylonian diviner of some kind, who some, according to Strabo, reckoned was the key transmitter of astrology, while others thought he was an expert in extispacy, that is, looking at the guts of slaughtered animals for occult knowledge, which is a much smellier form of divination than astrology. Now, this sort of transmission mythology is all well and good, and I didn't want to do this episode without mentioning Berossus, because he's a very interesting figure, but I, for one want to hear about who the legendary founders of astrology itself were. We've been mired in the details of phenomenal history when things actually happened at a given time, and as we've seen, the birth of astrology in Egypt is very difficult to date, and it's a very messy melting pot of different traditions. But the ancients, that is the Greeks and Romans, give us a much tidier answer to the question of the origins of astrology. So who were the legendary Egyptians who first wrote texts of Hellenistic astrology, manuals. Our evidence for the earliest astrological manuals can be summed up as a body of pseudonymous literature emanating from Egypt, written in Greek, and attributed to a number of names, of which three in particular stand out. The first two are Nehepso and Petosiris, if I'm pronouncing those right, notional Egyptian sages whose presumed identities may or may not be sort of associatable with real figures of Egyptian history. These two were drawn on heavily by the later classical astrological tradition. So they're cited, for example, in Thrasilius's Pinax and Manilius's Astronomica. The Pinax, the tablet, survives only in a summary, but it was originally published in the first century CE, so a relatively early astrological uh, manual text. The Astronomica of Manilius is a Latin poem, which, being a poem, is a bit elusive, but it nevertheless also seems to refer to our two gentlemen, Petosiris and Nehepso. And this dates to the late 1st century BCE at the earliest, but probably the early 1st century CE, much like the Pinax. We're talking about 1st century literature here. From both of these and from other sources, we can surmise that Nehepso and Petosiris literature seems to have included four main types of text, omens, seemingly developed from the Babylonian tradition, horoscopic astrology texts, numerological theories, and works on the occult properties of stones and plants. So we see here not only Hellenistic astrology, but the seeds of the associated occult sciences of lapidaries and herbals, which often play a part in traditions of astral magic, as we shall see, and numerology, a crucial occult science to which we shall be devoting our first episode very soon. But there's a third name cited by our two authors, and more generally by the astrological tradition. Yes, gentle listeners, it is time to introduce our favorite divine sage from the immemorial past, 
the one and only thrice great Hermes. It is Hermes who is most often cited in the classical tradition as the founder of astrology. And the texts referred to in our authors Thrasyllus and Manilius, whom we just mentioned, and by many others, seem to be the original Hermetica. Now, the Hermetica are a complex literary genre which we shall be exploring as we pursue the history of Western esotericism. As we shall see, Hermes often features in intellectual lineages of esoteric authors, and more often than not, he features as the primordial founder figure, or at least a very early, important transmitter of the secret knowledge. We shall be meeting the thrice great one again in his many guises throughout the podcast. Now, this literature called Hermetic isn't always meant to be the ipsissima verba of Hermes himself. It's not always Hermes who's speaking, although it sometimes is. We find a sort of host of supporting characters in the Hermetic literature, such as Asclepius, to whom there are also early astrological texts attributed, Tat, another friend of Hermes, Agathodaimon, and many others. And a lot of scholars tend to read the Petosiris and Nehepso literature as itself being hermetic. What's meant by that will hopefully emerge as we proceed in the podcast. Now, on that tantalizing note, we must leave the subject of Hellenistic astrology until next time. Our remit as historians here at the Schwepp we hope allows us to summarize the basics of the historical development of Hellenistic astrology, although we admittedly lack the kind of linguistic expertise to deal with things like demotic texts or cuneiform tablets. But there is another dimension of this subject which listeners may have found conspicuously absent from this episode, and which we are also conspicuously ill-qualified to talk about. This is the technical side. What were these astrologers doing exactly? How was it all supposed to work from a theoretical or scientific standpoint? What else can we say about this new astrological synthesis which arose in Egypt that differentiates it from earlier and later astrological traditions? To answer these questions, we thought it best consult with an actual astrologer who also happens to be a historian of astrology. So tune in next time for an interview with astrologer, podcaster, and historian of Hellenistic astrology, Chris Brennan. And until then, stay esoteric. <laughs>